This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Good morning. I'm Jack Ward, and thank you for joining me here on Mutual Presents. It's our 10th episode for Season 3, and we're back to Sunday Showcase with the Mutual Radio Theater. This week's double feature includes The Ship and Mutiny Against G. Washington. So let's turn back those clocks as we return to the days of Classic Mutual. This is Leonard Nimoy. You're on the largest oil tanker ever built. Right now, it's fully loaded and traveling the waters of the Southern Ocean through the night on its way to the United States. In the dark night, the captain hears and then sees a helicopter with its landing lights on, flying over the ship, hovering over the landing pad. This is an alert. Helicopter landing. Form an armed party and find out who they are. The small crew of seven men scramble for their rifles and run across the immense deck, running to where the helicopter hovers. Unseen by the captain or any of the crew, a second helicopter hovers, lights off, directly above the bridge, and five armed men are lowered to the roof of the bridge. Distracted by the first helicopter, no one has seen the landing of the second one. Captain, please raise your hands very slowly. dark night in the southern ocean, the world's largest oil tanker has just been hijacked. And that's only in the beginning of our story. Mutual Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week, brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Our story, The Ship, by Andre Stoika. Our stars, Brock Peters and John Daner. The hijack crew takes over the oil tanker, the regular crew is locked in the ship's brig, and the new captain takes charge and adjusts his course. Several hundred miles away, there's a small, sparsely populated island, and on the island is a lonely man who knows nothing of what has happened. 
Yet his life is about to be changed by these events. Here's his story. Twenty years is a long time to be in a place, but I've been here that long. When I came to this island, it was with other men from my home. We had heard that the fish ran strong in these waters, and the women believed anything you told them. It was true. But twenty years is twenty years, and now the fish have run out, and the women are wiser. And how do I account for my time? It is true that I have grown. I started as a fisherman, and now I own a store, a provisioner. Well, that's not too bad. In fact, that is how I met Conklin. Maybe a year ago. Hey, Sanduro. <laughs> how many poles have you got stuck in the sand there? I have ten. Ten poles? What do you do with all those fish? With my luck, I'll only catch one. The rest of the poles keep the odds in my favor. Ah, <laughs> I did that once. I put out 50 poles and lines, all baited, and can you guess? They all caught something. It fed a whole village, and I, I, I was just looking for supper. Lucky man. I am a lucky man, and you are lucky, too. Why am I lucky? I have brought you my business. In such a way, I met Conklin. An expansive man. He bought much fishing gear from me, but somehow I don't believe he fished, for I never saw his catch. Some men expand on the truth in their stories, but we don't call them liars. It's just their nature. On the other hand, we don't believe them a lot either. Would you like some coffee? Of course. Hey, did I tell you I was in Sydney? That's a long sail. By myself. You handled the boat alone? By myself, through a thousand miles of sea. Once the waves rose over a hundred feet, and I played them like a game. Dangerous. A game. I played and won. I got there and I got back. What is Sydney like? You never been there? No. Yeah. It's marvelous. The women are very nice. Proper, but I know my way around them. One has to be, <laughs> one has to be skillful. You are skillful. Very skillful. Uh, tell me, provisioner, could you outfit a fishing fleet? Of course, I've done it many times. How big a fleet? Maybe six boats, full crew. Where'd you get your provisions? From a boat. It comes every three weeks. Hmm. It's too bad there's no airfield. Who wants to fly here? Ah, who indeed? <laughs> That's a good question. I am staring at you, and I am seeing a very rich man. I should be so lucky. I'm not talking about luck. I'm talking about fate. We're fated to be together, Sanduro, and this will bring us both a great deal of wealth. I believe in fate. I've often wondered why I was fated to live on this island. With no wife. There are plenty of women. Ah, but they're smarter now. <laughs> For their own protection. But the women in Sydney, oh, they're more beautiful. You've just been to Sydney? And brought back fate. For you, my friend, and for me. Let's hope fate brings us supper. 
I had a strike just then and pulled her in. No fight to speak of, but enough size for dinner for two. I invited Conklin to join me, and he agreed. After dinner, we sat on the porch and watched the lights of a small boat at anchor. What is the largest ship you've ever seen? The largest? Not many around here. A big freighter lost her course once. What is the largest ship you have seen? You wouldn't believe me. I might. Well, I'll test you. The largest ship I ever saw was nearly 1,400 feet long. Where did you see it? Two years ago in Japan, they were just building her. For what? Oil. An oil tanker, a huge one. It's the largest ship in the whole world. And you swear this is true? It is true. You will see her. Me see her? What would she do here? She's coming here at this very moment, my friend. She will be here in two days, and then you will see her. But she cannot stop here. There is no depth to the bay. Oh, not in the bay. Out at sea. Two miles out, it is deep. But why? Because, my friend, I have already hijacked her. Hijacked? You? Yes. And now you will join with me. Well, what do you need from me? You're a provisioner. We need provisions. You will provide. My friend, what you are doing is against the law. What law are you referring to? Have I stolen in anything from anyone on this island? Have I an enemy on this island? Do I harm this island? International laws? Probably, probably. But what is more important, law or oil? I think we'll find out, and you will be with us. I have never violated a law in my life. For me to do this would make me a criminal. My dear friend, you have been here on this island for 20 years, and what have you got? Small life, a very small life. What I'm offering you is a chance for change, a change to a very big life. The owners of that ship want it back. I want to give it back. They will make a nice exchange, and we will all be rich. How rich would that be? <laughs> the businessman in you shows your share will not be less than 50,000 Swiss francs. That much money would surely make a change for me. Well, what must I do for it? You will supply food, clothing, water to the crew of the ship. You will get it through your normal supplier, and you will secretly bring it to the ship when she arrives here. That is all. You are paying a high price for food. I'm paying a high price for your trust, your loyalty, your discretion. These things are more priceless than food. And if I refuse? You will not refuse. But if I do? I... Must kill you. But I swear that I do not wish to do that. I would rather make you a rich man. It would make me very rich. You might wish to leave this island, return home, or perhaps Sydney. I could introduce you to uh, women there. <laughs> oh, oh, what women. They are much smarter than the women here. Oh, yes, yes, they are. But by then, you would be... Uh, uh, <laughs> 
A very rich man. <laughs> Life is full of choices, and Sanduro. A lonely man on a lonely island has made his choice. He has chosen to side with Conklin and assist in hijacking the world's largest oil tanker. And Conklin has given him money, cash to be used in increasing his inventory of supplies. His timing was perfect. For the next day, the supply boat to all these islands came into the bay, and I purchased extra provisions. Mr. Charles, the owner. Seemed a little surprised at my order, but he filled it. Very large order, Sandoro. Very large, like the old days. Perhaps the old days have returned. The fish are running well again. They are running better. I would spread the word. No. What? They are running better than before, and already there are more fishermen. Don't spread the word. Let these men make a living. It has been some time since fishermen could make a living around here. Let them make it. Don't bring more boats here. What do you care? You sell to whoever buys. New fisherman, old fisherman. What do you care? I care. Please. I see. Your order is very expensive. Of course, you have my credit, but. Do you have some money for me in advance, a little down, just in case your judgment has failed you? My judgment has not failed, but yes, I I have money for you. You do? Oh, very well. I shall not spread the word. Charles was a very suspicious man. He suspected everything, and he was a talkative man. News around the islands travels by radio and by boat, and so when Chow delivers supplies, he delivers news. I tried to keep his suspicions away. After all, what could he suspect? That a great ship full of oil was approaching. So I made my excuses, and he seemed to believe me. He seemed to believe me more when I gave him the money. Sandoro. Here is my bill for your supplies. You are charging me double the price. It would seem so. Double the price. You do not wish to pay it. You wish to argue. It is not fair. What is fair? Fair is what I can get. You will pay, would you, or do you wish to argue? I pay. <laughs> What are you laughing at? You, you say there are fish. Others say there are none. You say you wish to have fishermen. There are no fishermen. Look at this bay. Where are the boats? They are. They are out at sea. And I didn't see them. No. You have something else in mind. What is it? Why do you need these supplies? Tell me. I will keep your secret. I have no secret. You have no secret, but you will pay double price, won't you? I will pay. Give me the money. Good. You will not talk. I will not talk. 
Money in hand, he ordered his men to untie his boat. I stood on the dock watching him back up and swing the nose of his boat out toward the ocean. My eyes and mind played tricks on me, for I thought I saw a shadow of something at the mouth of the bay. But it was an illusion. I worried. He knew I was up to something. But could he know about the ship? Would he be truthful to his word, or might a word slip out to someone on one of the other islands? Would others be curious? My mind worried as his boat slipped away. Perhaps I should have told him the truth. Perhaps I should have made him a partner with me and demanded his silence. Perhaps I am too slow sometimes. And this time I was angry at myself for not having thought of something smarter. His boat reached the edge of land and moved out of the bay to the sea. It picked up speed. And I imagined that he was hurrying, hurrying to tell someone that I had a secret. I wanted to wave him back, but he could not see me, for his boat now was very small. The speck of the boat turned bright orange and disappeared in an instant. A few puffs of smoke rose from the water where the boat had been. It happened so fast that I wondered whether it happened at all. But I knew it had. The boat had blown up, and Mr. Chow and his crew were all dead. The money I had paid him was at the bottom of the sea, and it had happened in an instant. I knew Chow, and I knew the explosion couldn't be an accident. And if the explosion wasn't an accident, it must have been on purpose. I was very much afraid. The next day, Conklin arrived, and I told him of the explosion and my fear. He expressed great sympathy for the crew, but he knew nothing else about it. Together we loaded the supplies onto my boat, and midday we set out to sea to meet the great ship. Keep the steady course, my friend. Hold at 240 degrees. We're low in the water from the cargo. Well, we'll lighten her soon. Fog ahead. Don't worry, I've got a true bearing. And of course, I've got this. What is it? Kind of radar. I can sight that ship in the fog, even if my bearing is wrong. In the fog? You must show me. I will. Straighten her up, my friend. It is lucky that this is a calm sea. I told you, you're a lucky man. The fog surrounded us close and thick. At times I could not even see Conklin, who stood with his radar only seven feet away. I grew tired. It is not difficult to run my boat under most conditions, but fully loaded it lay close to the water, and each change in course I made with difficulty. I could not see where we were heading, but Conklin didn't mind. He worked with his box, and after a few minutes, a sound came from it. What is it, Conklin? The radar is working. It's working perfectly. Change course to 242 degrees. My boat would not fail me. We have been through a great deal, and I have shown her respect. And now she showed me respect. She worked harder than she was used to. But she did it. We moved through the fog, and my eyes watched the compass constantly, for there was not more to be seen. And then Conklin shouted to me, Stop! Here! 
We have reached the ship. I can't see it. We have not reached the ship. We've reached a point on the chart. A very small point, but an important one. You see, my friend, the ship will reach us. Fogs at sea can lie thick and dense, swirling walls of white, blinding the traveler. In such a fog, two men wait for a monster ship. Conklin hunched over his radar box, and his face froze in concentration. Several times I wanted to talk with him, but his concentration was so deep that I was afraid to disturb him. The fog was so thick I could not watch the waves, and it seemed wrong to want to fish, so I sat with my thoughts and waited silently. I thought of Sydney and how I would be there soon, rich and respected. I thought of the beautiful women of Sydney and how they would swoon over me. And I thought, I will be nice to them. Not like some rich men I have heard of. I will be very nice, and they will be very nice. And then Conklin spoke for the first time in two hours. It is here. What? The ship is here. I don't see anything. Look on the screen. Yes. See how this sweeps? I see it. Now, watch. Now, over here. See the blip of green? That is the ship? That's it. About five miles from us. It'll be here in less than an hour. We sat waiting. Conklin looking at his radar and me looking at the fog. I could see nothing. And the silence of the fog began to wear on me. You hear? Yes, Conklin. It's coming. Conklin, are we safe? Safe? Of course. But a ship as big as you say, if it were to hit us, it would break our boat apart and suck us beneath the bow. It could, but it won't. We're very safe here. Because while I'm watching them on this radar, they're watching us on their radar. We're very safe. That is, we're safe if they're hungry for this food. My eyes searched the fog for a sign. In my mind, I thought the ship would run over us, but Conklin seemed so certain that it wouldn't. I was not sure. One moment, I was certain it would run over us, and I began to tremble. And then the fog began to thin, and the thinning slowly became a lifting. And with the lifting, I could see the ship. In my wildest imagination, I could not have imagined a thing like that ship. I could see the bow, but the stern was so far away. Conklin was right. It towered above us so that unless I looked straight up, my vision was all black with the hull. And Conklin was also right in that we were in no danger, for it was not angled toward us. It had come to a complete stop in the water. It was a monster. I raised the sea anchors and started the engine and headed for the monster ship. Its shadow fell nearly a quarter of a mile port side, and we moved into it so that while it was still day, we were moving into darkness. 
Conklin directed me, and he motioned upward to the deck. They gave him a signal, and he told me to stop the engines. From above on the deck, a crane swung out over us, carrying a large wooden platform. When we could reach it, Conklin and I guided it to our deck, and the two of us loaded it with the supplies. Three times we loaded the platform, and three times it was carried up to the deck, unloaded, and lowered again to us. The fourth time completed the delivery of the supplies. Conklin packed his radar box and put his things on top of the boxes of supplies. Full and complete delivery, my friend. You've done a fine job of it. If I start back to the shore now, I'll have light most of the way. Start back? Aren't you curious to see the ship? I'm curious, but I think it is safer for me to leave now. Remember, I must find another source of supply. My friend, you have delivered as promised. Now please step onto the platform. We'll both take a ride up to the deck. Then I must fix the anchor or she will float away. Oh, don't concern yourself with that. You'll have no more need for your boat. No more need? On to the platform. From somewhere he had pulled out a gun and he pointed it at me. I had no time to think and so I did as he told me and stepped onto the platform. He stepped on the other side and still holding his gun at me, made a signal. The crane pulled us up. And I looked down at my boat as it got smaller and smaller, as we rose higher and higher until finally the crane swung us away from the water and lowered us onto the deck of the ship. As I stepped off the platform onto the deck, Conklin motioned to another man, and he also had a gun in his hand. Here's our provisioner. Take him below with the crew. Right. You will walk ahead of me. Conklin. What is happening? My friend Sandoro, your life on the island has kept you far from, uh, what, the greed of man? <laughs> you are an innocent. I admire that quality. You have served your purpose, and I'm afraid we're finished with you. Finished with me? Mm. You, you promised me 50,000 Swiss francs. I lied. You lied to me? Ah, what can I say? You know I'm a born liar, and <laughs> lying to you wasn't difficult. Now, I'm afraid there are no 50,000 Swiss francs for you, and I'm sorry to say your life itself is in some question, but you may be certain I'll do what I can for you. My boat? Your boat will be destroyed. It is the final link between the food supply and the ship, and when your boat is destroyed, there will be no way of finding us out here at sea. Conklin, you are a very bad man. Me? Bad? Ah, I suppose you're right. I was led from the deck of the ship to the control building, and the man behind me pushed on an elevator button, and we waited. We stood on a deck just below the bridge of the ship, and I could see out, down to the water, and my boat which had floated away from the great tanker. Then, just as the elevator door opened, my boat turned bright orange, just as Mr. Chow's boat had done. 
My boat was gone without a trace. My boat, which had served me so well. I wanted to cry with anger, but the armed man pushed me into the elevator, and the door closed, shutting me off from the world. I could not guess what was ahead of me, but in my mind I kept thinking, my life is over, my life is over. And I truly thought it was. Leonard Nimoy again, and here's the fourth act of The Ship. Trick you. Serves you right. How does it feel to be behind these bars? I was too greedy, Captain. I think I should have suspected something. Well, greed gets to all of us at one time or another. Think of the greed of those guys on the bridge who took over my ship. I wonder what they're planning to do with us. I think... I think they will kill us. I think so, too. This, uh... This island you come from, how far would you make it? Two miles. Maybe a little bit more. You hear that? Two miles on a calm sea? It's a possible swim. But we would have to to be out of here to be able to swim. Oh, we can get out all right. We just didn't know there was an island out there to get to. And now you know. Now I think it's time for us to leave this ship. Me too? Why? After all, you were on their side. I paid for it. My boat is lost. It it was a big loss for me. (laughs) I'm sure it was. I have a home on the island. There is food, water, and a radio. Uh, Captain, we could radio our position. We could. Or he could be setting us up for something. Tell me, Sandero, are you setting a trap for us? Still working for them? Oh, if he is, he'll be with us. It's the same trap. The captain took some tools from somewhere. And with the help of the crew, broke the lock on the prison door. Beyond this was a large metal door, and the captain broke through this its lock too. It was so easy, I could see that they could have escaped at any time they wanted to. They simply had no place to escape to. We slipped through the empty corridors of the great ship unnoticed until we found a stairway. We moved up the stair past landings and doors. The captain knew his ship, and finally on one landing at one door, he stopped us. Okay, we're on the starboard side. Fifty feet from this door is a ladder to water level. That's a long climb down. Take it slow, you'll be okay. Now remember... The real workout is the swim after we get down. You got it? It's going to be dark out there. So we'll hold on to one another until we get there. What if they uh, spot us? If they spot us, just hurry. I figure they're mostly on the bridge. It'll take them ten minutes at least to get to the side. By that time, we'll be partway down. Once we're in the water, we'll be hard to find. Yeah. While we're on that ladder, we'll be like sitting ducks. The captain opened the door and we stepped onto the deck. 
It was good to be in the fresh air of the sea, and I breathed deeply as we crept along the side of the ship. Then a strange thing happened. The black sky was suddenly bright with flares. Are they crazy? Using flares near an oil chamber? The flares lit up the sky and the ship, and I thought for sure we would be seen. Prepare to be boarded. We have you covered. Come within 50 yards of us. We'll blow you out of the water. What's happening, Captain? Sounds like someone's trying to hijack the hijackers. What do we do? Keep moving. If they start shooting, this whole ship could blow up. I don't want to think about that. We got to the ladder. One by one, we slipped over the side of the great tanker. The attention of the bridge was on the other ship to port, and they never saw us. It was such a long way down, rung by rung. We climbed down very slowly and more and more painfully. And the farther down we were, the less and less we could hear of what was going on between the ships. We climbed down, and as I moved, I thought of the oil that was just beyond the metal plating of the ship, inches from my face, and that it was getting ready to explode. Okay, men. I you got your direction? The only thing they can tell you is to swim. And let's hope we get out of here before they find us. The worse that the whole thing goes. Two miles. Only two miles. Let's put on some distance. We all swam, each at his own pace. I am not a fast swimmer, and in the darkness, I felt that everyone had swum ahead of me. But even though I am not fast, I am constant. And in a while... I turned back to see how far I had swum. The dark shape of the ship could be seen under the light of the flares. I had swum a good distance. I looked for the captain, and I looked for the crew, but could not see them, and I thought it would not be smart to call out to them. So I turned back toward the island and began swimming again. My arms were heavy, but I thought, it is my wind. I will be better. And I swam on until something made me stop again. And I turned back to see the ship. What the captain had said might happen had really happened. What I saw was a great ball of fire rise from the middle of the ship into the air. And then a second ball of fire rose from the bow of the ship. And then another and another explosion until instead of a ship... I was looking only at fire, and within the fire I thought I could see the ship rise into the air. I could feel the heat, and I knew I must continue to swim, for such explosion would cause a wave of water, and if I'm caught, I will drown. I swam as hard as I could, and my mind was a blank with only one thought in it, to reach my island before the wave. But I was not strong enough. And in the darkness, I could hear the wave coming for me, rushing for me. And then I felt caught up in it, twisted by it, enveloped in it. I was spinning in the dark water, and after I gasped for air, the black night and the black water closed onto me. Gasped my life. My lungs filled, and I tried to cry out, but my mind went blank, and I slipped into another world.
what happened after my body reached the shore of my island. I know only from stories of the villagers. I heard that there was a wall of fire around the island from the oil, and it was a mile high and lasted a week. But I do not believe it. I heard that the men of the island pulled their boats ashore to keep them from burning because the whole ocean was on fire. But my boat was already destroyed. And so I can only tell what has been told to me. I heard that the tides and wind shifted so that the ocean of oil floated away from our island. But I saw none of these things, for I lay unconscious for nearly two weeks, tended by the islanders. And there was talk among them that I was failing, and that soon I would die. After two weeks of unconsciousness, my eyes opened and I slowly began to see my home on the island. Casey, one of the fishermen, came in to look after me, and he told me of what happened. You should have seen it. He tried to tell me of everything that had happened, but my mind was on the captain, and I stopped his talk to learn about the crew. They are gone. Dead? No, a helicopter came for them. I've never seen such a huge helicopter. And they were all alive. Well, almost one died in the wave. Let me tell you about the wave. Only one dead. A miracle. It's all a miracle. Will you let me tell you about it? And he told me about it. But I was too weak to listen. And when I was well, he told me again. By the time I was out of bed, the island was normal again. A month later, some money came for me from the company that owned the tanker. It was a reward for saving the captain and most of his crew. It wasn't a large sum, but it was enough to buy another boat. Since Mr. Chow died, I took over his route. Now I am supplier to all the islands here. It is not a big life for me, but it is better than before. I have stopped dreaming of Sydney and the beautiful women. They were only dreams. I have my own life, and it is here. Sometimes, I think back to Conklin. Poor Conklin. And what he told me. Perhaps I am a lucky man. Radio Theater is brought to you five nights a week at this time. Tonight's original radio play, The Ship, was written by Andre Stoika and produced and directed by Fletcher Markle. Your host was Leonard Nimoy. Our stars were Brock Peters and John Damon. Featured in the cast were Tyler McVeigh, Marvin Miller, and Andre Stoika. The Mutual Radio Theater theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. John Harlan speaking. Associate Director of Mutual Radio Theater is Ken McManus. Sound effects were created by Bud Tollefson. 
Mark Trella is production supervisor. Recording engineer, Hal McDonald. Music editor, Lee Ringette. The Elliott Lewis production of Mutual Radio Theater is a presentation of CVI. Mutual Radio Theater has been brought to you by Sears, a name that means quality and value. A name that you can count on for service and dependability. Sears, where America shops for value. This is Lorne Green. Listen in on Monday for another story about the West, as it was then, as it is now. This is Lorne Green. It all seems so obvious to us now for the past to look back upon. But to those who lived it, with no such past to guide them, all was mystery and terror and even worse, contradiction. We hold these truths to be self-evident, declared Thomas Jefferson in 1776. But to him, those truths were anything but self-evident one year earlier. When he wrote, We mean not to dissolve that union which has so long and so happily subsisted between us. We have not raised armies with ambitious designs of separation from Great Britain and establishing independent states. No taxation without representation. What principle could be more self-evidently just? Yet in 1765, when the British passed the Stamp Act, no such principle had ever existed in America or England. What then did those vociferous colonists of 1775 really think they were doing? And why? The strangeness of it all deepens when we turn to the shadowy, remote, godlike figure of George Washington. Our 20th century minds can scarcely grasp what really moved him and why. But that is exactly what we are going to probe in the story you are about to hear. Mutual Radio Theater. A new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week. Brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Our story, The Mutiny Against George Washington by Edward Borgers. Our stars, Fletcher Markle and Tommy Cook. We'll now hear about the mutiny against George Washington from a soldier of the Revolution who knew Washington well. My name is Kenneth Hawkins, Continental Army. Yes, I... I did know the commander. Met him in a strange way, to be sure. And yes, I was there at the mutiny. The beginnings, though, I had to get from my cousins, John Adams and Sam Adams, 
You see, I was rather busy at the time at a couple of places called Lexington and Concord. But on May 17, 1775, John and Sam were in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress. And the news from my part of the country hit Philadelphia just in time to give that Congress a real lift. Sam, it wasn't just a British defeat, it was a rout. <laughs> we chased them, John, like terriers after an alley cat. Another half mile to Charleston and they'd have trampled on each other. Now it's only a question of how much time before we drive them into the sea. Nothing like a little good news to set the whole Congress afire. Well, it's done that all right, for all except our stone-faced giant from Virginia. Uh, outside there, through the window, the one dressed in his scarlet uniform. Stands out from the rest of us drab exhibits like a cockatoo and a flock of sparrows. You're speaking of Colonel Washington, of course. Colonel? Oh, you mean that uniform isn't a fake? That iceberg really is a soldier? He served with Braddock and at Fort Necessity. Disasters both, but they've certainly given him more experience than most colonial officers. Well, well. It is odd he doesn't seem more pleased with a military victory in Massachusetts. Oh, come, John. Don't be naive. Is one prima donna delighted with another prima donna when she hits a perfect high C? Outside, right at this moment, the tall, stately figure my cousins were talking about was walking toward the state house. He moved slowly, staring down, oblivious of those hurrying past him. Uh, Mr. Washington, sir, uh... Good morning, Colonel Washington. Yes. Uh, I'm Perkins from the Pennsylvania Packet. Uh, these are grave times, Colonel Washington. The gravest, sir. Colonel, in these days when the fate of all of us hangs by a thread, what are you thinking about? I've been studying the bricks in Philadelphia's streets. Bricks? If you will measure, sir, <clears throat> you will find that one brick is ten inches long by three inches wide. Uh... Yes, sir. Twelve bricks laid end-to-end -end make a road three inches wide and ten feet across. Four such bricks laid side-by-side side make one foot wide. Uh, true. How many feet in a mile? Uh, uh, 5,280. Times four bricks wide equals 21,120. Times twelve bricks across equals 253,440 bricks for one mile of Philadelphia brick road ten feet wide. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Colonel Washington, do you know what is to be discussed today by Congress? I understand it's a wordy debate on the natural rights of man. You're not interested in the debate, Colonel? Abstractions bore me. Good morning, Mr. Washington. Greetings, Colonel. John Adams. Samuel Adams. Good morning, sirs. Wonderful news from Boston. We have provoked the British, certainly. Let us hope not fatally so. Are you sorry, Colonel Washington? I fear bloodshed in this business is inevitable. I'm sorry that it's begun before we have even the shadow of an army. Still, I'd rather have been with the Minutemen at Concord than with poor Pitcairn's gorgeous redcoats. That was the success of a puppy nipping at the rear shank of a sleeping bulldog. I would not count on it as general practice. What do you think should be done, Colonel? 
I am not one who believes the roused wrath of the armies of the king will be a festival of joy. No, no. Nor I. At present, our colonies are 13 puppies, erratic, running about in a hundred directions, yapping at each other, waiting to be gulped up one at a time at the English bulldog's leisure. And your prescription, Colonel? Thirteen bands of gypsies who call themselves colonial militia must be welded into one army, representing one people under one command, able to move anywhere, anytime, in any way, as one unit. Otherwise, we all sit here waiting for doom. One army? From militias as different from each other as Arabs and Eskimos? How would you achieve that? With the great leveler of all human distinctions. Discipline. A high price, Colonel. Too high for justice? Too high to save representative government? <coughs> Excuse me, gentlemen. John, would you let me stand in the sun for a few hours? I need thawing out. Colonel Washington's not a man who overwhelms you with cordiality, is he? Still, what he said about the need for one commander, one army, one nation, uh, he wasn't totally wrong, you know. Hmm. Well... Here comes the member of Congress least likely to agree with anybody. Let's see what he says. Morning, Dylan. Beautiful day. Rain, probably. Little trouble with the King's army up in Concord. Be more. You can count on that. We're going to have to stand together against the common threat. I reckon Rhode Island will take no more sass in Massachusetts. There's talk we should get all our armed forces together under a single commander. I don't know. Personally, I'm against it. You? You, Sam? You're against it? For heaven's sake, why? Why? Oh, good Lord, man. You're talking about a giant army. What if it should mutiny? It's mid-May in 1775. As young Hawkins continues his report on what was happening between his cousins John and Sam Adams at the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Poor cousin John. He thought Sam Adams was his ally. It certainly didn't look that way now. Sam, I, I don't understand. Why are A you. A giant army is exactly our problem right now. Our problem is the eternal British Parliament. A big army is always a threat to liberty. Soldiers soon think of themselves as a body distinct from the rest of the citizens. They're used to reaching for their guns, and they do what their commanders tell them. I say, he who creates a big army forges his own chains. I know what you're trying to do, Sam. You're trying to talk me out of an adequate army by a lot of scare stories, but it won't work, see? Why not? Because I know we'll never get rid of the king's army unless we have a powerful, single, coordinated army of our own. And how do you expect to keep such an army from taking over the country? By having Congress stand over that army like an elephant on a cat's tail. By electing and dismissing their officers as we see fit. By keeping our thumb on every crust of bread they eat and every shirt they put on the backs. By telling them where to go and when to stop. And by being sure they're never too far ahead of starvation. Get a strong continental army with a strong commander-in-chief and keep them both in their place with a strong continental congress. Good day, gentlemen. Sam, what were you thinking of? You were on the wrong side of that argument with Dylan. Well, John, in the first place, you will never get a commander-in-chief unless you have the support of Nat Dillon and his friends. In the second place, you will never get Nat's support for anything. 
unless you oppose it yourself. So that's what I did. In the third place, those misgivings were all mine. And I wondered if Nat could give him any kind of an answer. I must say he did pretty well. You know, John, Washington's not the world's great socializer, but he does have the word of the hour. Discipline. He's not a New Englander, Sam. All the fighting's going on in Massachusetts. Well, that's the point, John. If this is just a New England war, we're going to find ourselves very lonely. We need some solid link to the other end of the country. Make a southerner commander-in-chief of everybody's army, and you make this everybody's war. Mm. Can he win battles? No general wins battles, John. That's the business of soldiers. I'll nominate him. Today. And that's what my cousin John did, all right. And with the leading New Englander making the nomination, it went right through. In the middle of June, the new commander-in-chief set out for Cambridge, Massachusetts, to take formal command of his new unified army. It was there that I... It still makes my flesh creep. All right, boys. The breastworks at Breed's Hill saved at least 200 lives for us. We never know when the King's troops may bust out of Boston looking for us again. Now, let's set up some more welcome hills for them. That makes sense, Lieutenant. Grab an axe and let's go. Lieutenants ain't supposed to do all the work in this army. It's Washington. Salute you, dummies. <clears throat> welcome to our humble camp, sir. Who's in charge here? I am, sir. Lem's our lieutenant, sir. Lieutenant? Yes, sir. Good one, too, sir. Best in the army. Uh, we think, sir. Lieutenant, are you aware that officers are not supposed to assist privates in the execution of their chores? I've heard the regulation, sir. Uh, but you see, sir, things are different here in Massachusetts. Up here... Are you aware that officers are not supposed to assist privates in the execution of their chores? Yes, sir. Yet you, an officer who should be setting an example of obedience for all your soldiers, you have taken it upon yourself to disregard the regulation? Yes, sir. You, take this rope and tie his hands together tight. But you see, sir, he was... Private, you must learn that in the Continental Army, orders from an officer are given only once. Yes, sir. Put, put out your hands, man. Sure. You, put on that limb so this man can tie the lieutenant's wrists to the branch. Yes, sir. You, you got him secure there, Nicholson? Yep. Yep. Strip off his shirt. Me, sir? You. Yes, sir. Who's the drummer here? Uh, me, sir. We'll need your whip. Well, sir, I, I have no whip. There's never been such a thing in this camp. Well, take mine. Yeah. I... Yes, sir. You will lay the whip on this man's back until I tell you to stop. Yes, sir. Harder, drummer. You must leave at least a mark each time. That's better. Continue. Three. Four. Five. Ah, drummer. That will be all. You... Cut the ropes that bind the prisoner. Surgeon, tend the offender. When he is conscious again, tell him to report to Captain Johnson for further assignment as private. Are there questions? 
Gentlemen, this is not a family outing. This is war. Your enemy is the world's best-trained army. Their success is discipline. You must match that discipline. Liberty or slavery? Life or death? Choose. That night at General Washington's headquarters, the candle burned late. Uh, what is it? You sent for me, sir. Oh, yes. The lad who administered the whipping. Your name? Hawkins. I'm the company drummer, sir. It seems that's one of my duties. You did your task well. Yes, sir. There were tears in your eyes. Yes, sir. Lemuel Hawkins is my older brother. Ah. How do you feel about him now? Just like I did before. I'm proud of him. Hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you think what he did was right? I think this was a better army when my brother was Lieutenant Hawkins, sir. Every man did his part gladly because it was something we'd all hatched up together. We were all sharing together and we were all going to benefit from it together. Now you've shackled our wrists and our feet and our minds. You've been a hand of ice on the Continental Army, sir. Indeed. The way we were doing things, we scared the British Army white. I'm not sure whether this new army will have the heart to fight at all. All right. Now shoot me, sir. You asked. On a June night in 1775, young Hawkins faces General George Washington in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's been asked to speak his mind and has done so boldly. Washington's face went as still as a painting for about five seconds. I didn't figure I had a minute to live. But at that moment, I didn't care. I was a lot madder at General Washington than I was at the British Army. So I just glared at him and waited for the bullet. If I ask, I want the truth. Do you think these men will desert? No, sir. Why not? Well, sir... We think you're wrong about the whole way you're going at this army. But you may be right. If Parliament chooses, they can make this a lot bigger thing than the little skirmishes we've just had at Concord and Breed's Hill. So maybe it has to be just the way you say. Anyhow, you're what we have, and we stand with you, sir. Hawkins, I shall need an aide-de-camp. I'm asking to have you transferred to me. Yes, sir. Wherever I'm needed, sir. That's the kind of general he was all through the war. Most of the men worshipped him because he never showed fear or dismay. A few noticed that he never showed anything else either. And a few others... But first, there was victory at Yorktown. British hopes for victory in America collapsed. Peace talks began over in Paris with Benjamin Franklin, head of our delegation. 
But then the talks bogged down and stalled for months. An American newspaper reporter tried to find out why. Dr. Franklin, all American citizens are becoming distraught about this peace treaty with Great Britain that never seems to get signed. I can imagine so. The peace negotiations are still going on here, aren't they? Oh, yes, yes. Every day something happens or doesn't happen. You do realize, Dr. Franklin, it's a terrible strain for us. The United States is in limbo, neither at peace nor war, neither slave nor free, neither subject nor independent. That's distressing, certainly. It's been a year since Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. A year and a month. But British troops still patrol the streets of Manhattan. It's outrageous. The American army sits a few miles above New York at Newburgh-on-the-Hudson, not daring to attack for fear of upsetting the negotiations, not daring to go home for fear the negotiations may fail and the war may start again. Quite so. Well, sir, can't you demand that the British do something? I think it would not be wise to signal our unease to the British. But if there isn't some sort of breakthrough soon... I'm not sure even General Washington can answer for the consequences. Tell the troops to be patient. Patience is a quality much admired in Europe. On Friday, March 14, 1783, the American army was concentrated at Newburgh on the Hudson. That day began the events that precipitated the mutiny and also showed us what kind of man Commander Washington really was. I was stationed with him at his headquarters. Mr. Governor Morris, sir. <clears throat> Levis Hawkins. Yes, sir. Mr. Morris. You know that at any moment we may hear news of the signing of a peace treaty between Great Britain and the United States? I devoutly hope so. Ah, indeed. But don't be too devout, General. When that news arrives, we shall all face a new threat. Oh? Even in our gravest peril, Congress has been remarkably casual in meeting its financial responsibilities. That's certainly been true with the Army. When war pressures stop, this congressional irresponsibility may well increase. I suppose so. You can understand that this will be a matter of concern to those of us who loan millions of dollars to the people of America, always with a clear statement of the inescapable obligations involved. I understand your concern. There were also promises by Congress that the Army's brave men and officers were to receive substantial pensions for their sacrifices. I have struggled for months to get those promises redeemed. I also. You can picture, General, the possible keenness of disappointment for the army and for those of us who have loaned money. I can. Has it occurred to you, sir, that those disappointments might be dangerous? In honesty, sir. In honesty? Yes. You and your army have seen better than anyone else what happens when a government is too weak for survival. You do see that we must have a strong and responsible government. I see that. Only one man is acceptable to all factions. The hero of Valley Forge in Yorktown. The living symbol of national unity. That's why you are indispensable when we, the enlightened ones, seize power. Overthrowing the government that I and the men serving under me have suffered so much to create? It is your suffering soldiers, General, who demand that I and my friends seize power. 
and that you take the title of Prime Minister, or, if you will, King. My own soldiers have come to you, but their officers would have forbidden... In this case, sir, the officers are the leaders. The whole army has never stood so united, or so firm. On what? You will be the figurehead. You need command only those matters of immediate interest to yourself. In your name, all men will keep the peace, the most urgent need. I and my friends, who seek no publicity, will do the ruling. We will tame your army with money, and tame your irresponsible citizens, in turn, with the army. And if I refuse? Your refusal would not change the nation's history. It would only make it bloodier. In any case, the army and I will take control. The nation will remember you, if at all, as the man who failed us when we needed him the most. It's bad for everyone, including the leader, when any one man has power that no one can question or check. I'm working for a representative government in which all points of view are heard and weighted. All points of view? All points of view among property gentlemen. Ah. In those same years, I, an experienced and trusted commander in a territory I knew best, was told I must take second rank to English-born officers of lower rank and no ability simply because I was colonial-born. A gentleman of worth and valor shackled simply because of his birth. Oh, beware, Commander. This way lies Jefferson's mad dog democracy. I know. I've always been clear that no man could be a gentleman could have wisdom or character until he had acquired substantial property. Those who dug and spun and built were ants, marvelous in their power and beauty, but also useless and dangerous unless guided by an intelligence of which they themselves were not part. Of course. What has made it possible for me to succeed was the certainty that exactly what I was doing was exactly right. Naturally, and now you... Now I'm no longer certain. You're what? No longer certain. Not certain? Jefferson claims that the human ants who labor have wisdom, neither more nor less than that of gentlemen, and character neither better nor worse than that of gentlemen. I am I'm not... aware of Mr. Jefferson's follies. But I am no longer certain that he is absolutely wrong. You what? I am no longer so certain of anything that I am willing to be a party to forcing it on others. This is a joke. <laughs> a test. I never indulge in either. I hadn't even considered. Your will is cracked. You are a war casualty. At least, Mr. Morris, to you. I, uh, I must salvage what I can. <laughs> Here's the fourth act of the mutiny against George Washington. Hardly had Governor Morris gone out the door than a second visitor arrived in General Washington's office. Mr. Dillon, thank heaven you've come. Well, that's an unlikely speech for sure. Sir, I must tell you about a matter of the gravest consequence. Indeed, you must. Sit down, please, and I'll ask you about it. B but uh, You I've... are under the command of the Congress, sir. It is for me to ask you questions, not vice versa. Washington, I hear reports of things I don't like. 
Mr. Dillon, sir, we're wasting precious time. What you need to know... I will be the judge of that, sir. Now, Commander, if you will, please examine this document. It arrived addressed to me and through me to the members of the Congress of the Confederation. Again and again, honorable gentlemen, you have promised us half pay for life. A year has gone by and you have done nothing. You have lied to us, honorable gentlemen, again and again. Lied. Note the insolence of that word. I note its truth, Mr. Dillon. Oh, come, come, General. Surely you know this Congress has no power to tax without the state's consent? And you know the states will never consent to give a whole army half pay? Yes, sir. I know it, and you know it, and Congress knows it. So to promise these men such things is to tell a knowing lie, is it not? Read, read, read it. Uh, it may be dangerous, gentlemen, to trust forever the patience of your soldiers. There. There you are, General. Now will you try to tell me that the Continental Army is not threatening the Congress of the Confederation? What you have been warned, Mr. Dillon, is that liars, even liars in the highest office, cannot count forever on the patience of the people who elect them. Oh, no? Well, soldiers, may I remind you, General, are not the masters, but the servants of the state. It is their patriotic duty to accept the lies of their elected officials, to believe those lies, and to execute their duty accordingly. If they do not, they should be court-martialed, the lot of them. Can't you discipline your own army, General? You forget, Mr. Dillon, a government that deceives and exploits its citizens forfeits the right to their loyalty. That was the message of the revolution to all rulers. You, you dare. General, you are to dissolve this army at once. On the word of one congressman? This is royalty with a vengeance. I shall speak with the Congress. Tell them what I know, and they will command you. Will you obey them? General Washington, sir? Mr. Dillon, at this hour, pirates prey against our ships with careless contempt. Spanish ships forbid us the use of our own Mississippi River. Indians and mobs threaten us daily. British troops still occupy American soil. At any moment, war may again break out. I would tell this to Congress, sir, and at the same time warn so, them... we are to be threatened if we have an army, and threatened if we do not. Is that your message to the Congress, General? Freedom is always threatened, Mr. Dillon. <clears throat> your only options are to meet those threats wisely or stupidly. What is it, Hawkins? The, the army, sir. The army, Hawkins? They are in revolt, sir. Mr. Morris and Major Armstrong have just made speeches that have ignited the whole army. Tomorrow morning, they set out for Philadelphia to seize the government. There. There. You see what I told you? Who opposes Armstrong, Hawkins? No one, sir. And when they march, no one in this land can stop them. No doubt. Betrayed. Betrayed. I knew it. Sir, they beg that you will lead them. And if not? Then Armstrong will lead them. And you will be alone, sir. He'll cut my throat. I'll never get out of here alive. Uh, Hawkins. Yes, sir. Congressman Dillon is to be escorted safely out of camp. Well, who, who is You, to... alone. Y yes, sir. What is your answer to the army, sir? I shall come to them tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. Dress parade, please. But your answer, sir. Tomorrow morning, Hawkins. Ten o'clock. Yes, sir. Please. Gentlemen, <clears throat> this morning I have. Uh, 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 Are you all right, sir? My glasses, Hawkins. Oh, I brought them, sir. Here. Thank you. 
Hawkins. What's the matter? <clears throat> Why the delay? Why? I, I beg your pardon, gentlemen. I ask your indulgence while I put on my spectacles. I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. If this were a public occasion, gentlemen, I should use it as I have used all such occasions to praise your courage and devotion to duty in the face of unimaginable suffering. Are you just trying to distract us, Washington? Major Armstrong, have I lied to you this morning? Well, no. When I speak my first lie, please interrupt me again. Yes, sir. You complain, gentlemen, of the incompetence, indifference, corruption, and deceptions of the government to which you have committed your lives. Let the record speak. What man, first and most often and most forcefully, voiced these complaints to Congress itself? That's why you must be our leader, sir. Gentlemen... You honor me as always, and once again I thank you. But, gentlemen, I must tell you frankly of my weakness as a leader. No, gentlemen, I can lead only when I know whom I lead and why I lead them. Until today, I knew both. Now, I know neither. So you must tell me. Major Armstrong, who are you? And why am I to lead you? You're asking me? Yes, Major, I ask you. Why, so you are, all of you. And if more mistreated than as British subjects, you should lay down your arms and beg King George to take you back. Shall we all do so, Major? Tell me where to lead you. Well, all we want is justice. And so do I. Now tell me, when you get to Philadelphia, what will you do? We'll kill the slimy congressman. Then who will right your wrongs? Suppose Congress agrees to anything you ask. Suppose there is enough money for five years full pay pension and that's all. Will you accept it or reject it? You see, gentlemen, you are not a government able to face your own problems and solve them. You are a mob, able only to destroy others and finally yourselves. Is this to be the dismal end of our eight years together? Gentlemen, gentlemen, I've led you against a king whom our people did not choose, a parliament for whom our people did not vote, and laws in whose creation our people played no part. I have led you that we might have a government of our own image, laws of our own passing, and officials of our own election. That's what we wanted, too. And you have fought and bled... And now you have it. Yes, that's right. You can't have justice until you have liberty, freedom of choice. We've been fighting for a representative government in which all have a voice. That battle is almost won. Do you want to cast it aside to create a tyranny in which you yourselves are the tyrants? Well, Congress cheats us, lies to us. They do. But remember this. Your own states have given them the task of looking after you 
but denied them the power to do anything about it. Congress can't raise a penny of taxes without the consent of all 13 states, and at least one state always refuses. What else can Congress do but lie, cheat, and pray for better days? Then what are we to do, sir? Look to the laws we pass, to the men we choose. What you are doing now, what you ask me to do, is to destroy your own instruments of choice. Yesterday, I led you against those who would deny you your own representation. Now, you ask me to lead you against yourselves, while you tear down the very hopes that were the object of our common agony. Major, I would sooner strike daggers into the heart of my own child. Well, then, uh, uh, how can we make anything better, sir? So far... Of our own choice, we have created a government too weak to do harm and therefore too weak to meet our most urgent needs. We must make that government strong enough to save us from starvation, from fear, from disintegration, even in the moment of victory. Then, so long as men are foolish and greedy, we must hold that government to strict account. Major Armstrong, you have a better plan? I... Uh, uh, no, sir. Not I. Others? I thank you, gentlemen, for your attention. It seems to me that this so-called mutiny is now at an end. Yes, sir. Thank you for standing firm. Now then, would you like a furlough, Hawkins? Oh, yes, sir. You have a family, a girl waiting? No, sir. No one. Yet you're eager to be away. Why? You'd be offended, sir. Hardly as offended as I'm now curious. I'm... Going to work against you, sir. You're joining King George? No, sir. Quite the opposite. You're an authoritarian. I'm going to work for questioning and challenge. Your liberty is a closed corporation for the few lucky enough to be wealthy. I'll work to make it open for everyone. I'm going to work for the principles of Thomas Jefferson. Heaven save us. I knew you'd be offended, sir. I... Think not, Hawkins. <clears throat> I struck at the heart of my day's authority. It's reasonable that you should strike at the heart of yours. When one starts a revolution for the rights of man, who can say where it should stop? The Mutual Radio Theater is brought to you five nights a week at this time. Tonight's original radio play, The Mutiny Against George Washington, was written by Edward Borgers and produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Your host was Lauren Green. Our stars were Fletcher Markle and Tommy Cook. Featured in the cast were Len Berman, True Boardman, 
Harley Bear, Barney Phillips, and Byron Kane. The Mutual Radio Theater theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. John Harlan speaking. The Elliott Lewis production of Mutual Radio Theater is a presentation of CBI. Mutual Radio Theater has been brought to you by Sears, a name that means quality and value. A name that you can count on for service and dependability. Sears, where America shops for value. This is Andy Griffith. Join us tomorrow at the same time. I've got another story I think you'll find riotously amusing. for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the matinee, and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.